Section four of the Common Reader. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Common Reader by Virginia Woolf. The Elizabethan Lumber Room. These magnificent volumes are not often, perhaps, read through. Part of their charm consists in the fact that Heiklut is not so much a book as a great bundle of commodities, loosely tied together, an emporium, a lumber-room strewn with ancient sacks, obsolete nautical instruments, huge bales of wool, and little bags of rubies and emeralds. One is forever untying this packet here, sampling that heap over there, wiping the dust off some vast map of the world, and sitting down in semi-darkness to snuff the strange smells of silks and leathers and ambergris, while outside tumble the huge waves of the uncharted Elizabethan sea. For this jumble of seeds, silks, unicorns' horns, elephants' teeth, wool, common stones, turbans, and bars of gold, these odds and ends of priceless value and complete worthlessness were the fruit of innumerable voyages, traffics, and discoveries to unknown lands in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. The expeditions were manned by apt young men from the West Country, and financed in part by the great Queen herself. The ships, says Fruit, were no bigger than modern yachts. There, in the river by Greenwich, the fleet lay gathered close to the palace. The privy council looked out of the windows of the court, the ships thereupon discharged their ordnance, and the mariners they shouted in such sort that the sky rang again with the noise thereof. Then, as the ships swung down the tide, one sailor after another walked the hatches, climbed the shrouds, stood upon the mainyards to wave his friends a last farewell. Many would come back no more. For directly England and the coast of France were beneath the horizon. The ships sailed into the unfamiliar. The air had its voices, the sea its lions and serpents, its evaporations of fire and tumultuous whirlpools, but God, too, was very close. The clouds but sparely hid the divinity himself. The limbs of Satan were almost visible. Familiarly, the English sailors pitted their God against the God of the Turks, who can speak never a word for dullness, much less can he help them in such an extremity. But howsoever their God behaved himself, our God showed himself a God indeed, God was as near by sea as by land, said Sir Humphrey Gilbert, riding through the storm. Suddenly one light disappeared. Sir Humphrey Gilbert had gone beneath the waves. When morning came, they sought his ship in vain. Sir Hugh Willoughby sailed to discover the northwest passage, and made no return. The Earl of Cumberland's men, hung up by adverse winds off the coast of Cornwall for a fortnight, licked the muddy water off the deck in agony. 
and sometimes a ragged and worn-out man came knocking at the door of an english country house and claimed to be the boy who had left it years ago to sail the seas sir william his father and my lady his mother knew him not to be their son until they found a secret mark which was a wart upon one of his knees but he had with him a black stone veined with gold or an ivory tusk or a silver ingot and urged on the village youth with talk of gold strewn over the land as stones are strewn in the fields of england one expedition might fail but what if the passage to the fabled land of uncounted riches lay only a little further up the coast what if the known world was only the prelude to some more splendid panorama when after the long voyage the ships dropped anchor in the great river of the plate and the men went exploring through the undulating lands startling grazing herds of deer seeing the limbs of savages between the trees they filled their pockets with pebbles that might be emeralds or sand that might be gold or sometimes rounding a headland they saw far off a string of savages slowly descending to the beach bearing on their heads and linking their shoulders together with heavy burdens for the spanish king these are the fine stories used effectively all through the west country to decoy the apt young men lounging by the harbour-side to leave their nets and fish for gold but the voyages were sober merchants into the bargain citizens with the good of english trade and the welfare of english workpeople at heart the captains are reminded how necessary it is to find a market abroad for english wool to discover the herb from which blue dyes are made above all to make inquiry as to the methods of producing oil since all attempts to make it from radish seed have failed they are reminded of the misery of the english poor whose crimes brought about by poverty make them daily consumed by the gallows they are reminded how the soil of england had been enriched by the discoveries of travellers in the past how dr lineker brought seeds of the damask rose and tulipus and how beasts and plants and herbs without which our life were to be said barbarous have all come to england gradually from abroad in search of markets and of goods of the immortal fame success would bring them the apt young men set sail for the north and were left a little company of isolated englishmen surrounded by snow and the huts of savages to make what bargains they could and pick up what knowledge they might before the ships returned in the summer to fetch them home again there they endured an isolated company burning on the rim of the dark one of them carrying a charter from his company in london went inland as far as moscow and there saw the emperor sitting in his chair of estate with his crown on his head and a staff of goldsmith's work in his left hand all the ceremony that he saw is carefully written out and the sight upon which the english merchant first set eyes has the brilliancy of a roman vase dug up 
and stood for a moment in the sun until exposed to the air seen by millions of eyes it dulls and crumbles away there all these centuries on the outskirts of the world the glories of moscow the glories of constantinople have flowered unseen the Englishman was bravely dressed for the occasion, led three fair mastiffs in coats of red cloth, and carried a letter from Elizabeth, the paper whereof did smell most fragrantly of camphor and ambergris, and the ink of perfect musk. And sometimes, since trophies from the amazing new world were eagerly awaited at home, together with unicorns' horns and lumps of ambergris, and the fine stories of the engendering of whales, and debates of elephants and dragons, whose blood, mixed, congealed into vermilion, a living sample would be sent, a live savage caught somewhere off the coast of Labrador, taken to England, and shown about like a wild beast. Next year they brought him back, and took a woman savage on board to keep him company. When they saw each other they blushed, they blushed profoundly, but the sailors, though they noted it, knew not why. Later the two savages set up house together on board ship, she attending to his wants, he nursing her in sickness. But, as the sailors noted again, the savages lived together in perfect chastity. All this, the new words, the new ideas, the waves, the savages, the adventures, found their way naturally into the plays which were being acted on the banks of the Thames. There was an audience quick to seize upon the coloured and the high-sounding, to associate those frigates bottomed with rich sethen planks, topped with the lofty firs of Lebanon, with the adventures of their own sons and brothers abroad. The Vernies, for example, had a wild boy who had gone as pirate, turned Turk and died out there, sending back to Claydon to be kept as relics of him some silk, a turban, and a pilgrim's staff. A gulf lay between the Spartan domestic housecraft of the Paston women and the refined tastes of the Elizabethan court ladies, who grown old says harrison spent their time reading histories or writing volumes of their own or translating of other men's into our english and latin tongue while the younger ladies played the lute and the citharn and spent their leisure in the enjoyment of music thus with singing and with music springs into existence the characteristic elizabethan extravagance the dolphins and lavoltas of green the hyperbole more surprising in a rider so terse and muscular of ben jonson thus we find the whole of elizabethan literature strewn with gold and silver with talk of guiana's rarities and references to that america oh my america my new-found-land which was not merely a land on the map but symbolized the unknown territories of the soul. So, over the water, the imagination of Montaigne brooded in fascination upon savages, cannibals, society, and government. 
but the mention of montaigne suggests that though the influence of the sea and the voyages of the lumber-room crammed with sea-beasts and horns and ivory and old maps and nautical instruments helped to inspire the greatest age of english poetry its effects were by no means so beneficial upon english prose rhyme and metre helped the poets to keep the tumult of their perceptions in order but the prose writer without these restrictions accumulated clauses petered out in interminable catalogues tripped and stumbled over the convolutions of his own rich draperies how little elizabethan prose was fit for its office how exquisitely french prose was already adapted can be seen by comparing a passage from sidney's defence of poesy with one from montaigne's essays Quote, he beginneth not with obscure definitions which must blur the margent with interpretations and load the memory with doubtfulness but he cometh to you with words set in delightful proportion, either accompanied with or prepared for the well-enchanting skill of music, and with a tale, forsooth, he cometh unto you, with a tale which holdeth children from play, and old men from the chimney-corner, and, pretending no more, doth intend the winning of the mind from wickedness to virtue." even as the child is often brought to take most wholesome things by hiding them in such other as have a pleasant taste which if one should begin to tell them the nature of the aloes or rhubarberum they should receive would sooner take their physic at their ears than at their mouth so it is in men most of which are childish in the best things till they be cradled in their graves glad they will be to hear the tales of hercules and so it runs on for seventy-six words more sidney's prose is an uninterrupted monologue with sudden flashes of felicity and splendid phrases which lends itself to lamentations and moralities to long accumulations and catalogues but is never quick never colloquial unable to grasp a thought closely and firmly or to adapt itself flexibly and exactly to the chops and changes of the mind compared with this montaigne is master of an instrument which knows its own powers and limitations and is capable of insinuating itself into crannies and crevices which poetry can never reach of cadences different but no less beautiful capable of subtleties and intensities which elizabethan prose entirely ignores he is considering the way in which certain of the ancients met death Quote, il en faiste couler et glisser parmi la lâcheté de leur occupation accoutumée entre des garces et bons compagnons nul propos de consolation nul mention de testament nul affectation ambitieuse de constance nul discours de leur condition future mais entre les jours les festins facéties entretiens communs et populaires et la musique et des vers amoureux 
End quote. An age seems to separate Sydney from Montaigne. The English, compared with the French, are as boys compared with men. But the Elizabethan prose writers, if they have the formlessness of youth, have, too, its freshness and audacity. In the same essay, Sidney shapes language, masterfully and easily to his liking, freely and naturally reaches his hand for a metaphor. To bring this prose to perfection, and Dryden's prose is very near perfection, only the discipline of the stage was necessary, and the growth of self-consciousness. It is in the plays, and especially in the comic passages of the plays, that the finest Elizabethan prose is to be found. The stage was the nursery where prose learnt to find its feet, for on the stage people had to meet, to quip and crank, to suffer interruptions, to talk of ordinary things. Quote, Claire, a box of her autumnal face, her pieced beauty. There's no man can be admitted till she be ready nowadays, till she has painted and perfumed and washed and scoured, but the boy here, and him she wipes her oiled lips upon like a sponge. I have made a song, I pray thee hear it on the subject. Page sings, still to be neat, still to be dressed, etc. True and I am clearly on the other side. I love a good dressing before any beauty of the world. Oh, a woman is then like a delicate garden, nor is there one kind of it. She may vary every hour, take often counsel of her glass, and choose the best. If she have good ears, show them. Good hair, lay it out. Good legs, wear short clothes. A good hand, discover it often." Practice any art to mend breath, cleanse teeth, repair eyebrows, paint and profess it. End quote. So the talk runs in Ben Jonson's Silent Woman, knocked into shape by interruptions, sharpened by collisions, and never allowed to settle into stagnancy or swell into turbidity. But the publicity of the stage and the perpetual presence of a second person were hostile to that growing consciousness of oneself, that brooding in solitude over the mysteries of the soul, which, as the years went by, sought expression and found a champion in the sublime genius of Sir Thomas Brown. His immense egotism has paved the way for all psychological novelists autobiographers, confession-mongers, and dealers in the curious shades of our private life. He it was who first turned from the contacts of men with men to their lonely life within. The world that I regard is myself. It is the microcosm of my own frame that I cast mine eye on. For the other I use it but like my globe, and turn it round sometimes for my recreation." All was mystery and darkness as the first explorer walked the catacombs swinging his lanthorn. I feel sometimes a hell within myself. Lucifer keeps his court in my breast. Legion is revived in me. In these solitudes there were no guides and no companions. 
I am in the dark to all the world, and my nearest friends behold me but in a cloud. The strangest thoughts and imaginings have play with him as he goes about his work. Outwardly the most sober of mankind, and esteemed the greatest physician in Norwich. He has wished for death. He has doubted all things. What if we are asleep in this world, and the conceits of life are as mere dreams? The tavern music, the Ave Mary bell, the broken pot that the workman has dug out of the field. At the sight and sound of them he stops dead, as if transfixed by the astonishing vista that opens before his imagination. We carry with us the wonders we seek without us. There is all Africa and her prodigies in us. A halo of wonder encircles everything that he sees. He turns his light gradually upon the flowers and insects, and grasses at his feet, so as to disturb nothing in the mysterious processes of their existence. With the same awe, mixed with a sublime complacency, he records the discovery of his own qualities and attainments. He was charitable and brave, and averse from nothing. He was full of feeling for others, and merciless upon himself. For my conversation, it is like the sun's with all men, and with a friendly aspect to good and bad. He knows six languages, the laws, the customs and policies of several states, the names of all the constellations, and most of the plants of his country. And yet, so sweeping is his imagination, so large the horizon in which he sees this little figure walking, that, methinks I do not know, so many as when I did, but know a hundred and had scarcely ever simpled further than Cheapside. He is the first of the autobiographers. Swooping and soaring at the highest altitudes, he stoops suddenly with loving particularity upon the details of his own body. His height was moderate, he tells us, his eyes large and luminous, his skin dark, but constantly suffused with blushes. He dressed very plainly. He seldom laughed. He collected coins, kept maggots in boxes, dissected the lungs of frogs, braved the stench of the spermaceti whale, tolerated Jews, had a good word for the deformity of the toad, and combined a scientific and skeptical attitude towards most things with an unfortunate belief in witches. In short, as we say when we cannot help laughing at the oddities of people we admire most, he was a character, and the first to make us feel that the most sublime speculations of the human imagination are issued from a particular man whom we can love. In the midst of the solemnities of the urn burial, we smile when he remarks that afflictions induce callosities the smile broadens to laughter as we mouth out the splendid pomposities, the astonishing conjectures of the Religio Medici. Whatever he writes is stamped with his own idiosyncrasy, and we first become conscious of impurities, which hereafter stain literature with so many freakish colors that, 
however hard we try, make it difficult to be certain whether we are looking at a man or his writing. Now we are in the presence of sublime imagination, now rambling through one of the finest lumber-rooms in the world, a chamber stuffed from floor to ceiling, with ivory, old iron, broken pots, urns, unicorns' horns, and magic glasses full of emerald lights and blue mystery. End of section 4